Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the surprising interior of a proton. And how to grow a new small intestine. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Shamini Vandell. First up, reporter Adam Levy has been peering inside the proton and finding out that this particle is full of surprises. When you think of the frontiers of physics, you might think of high-energy particle colliders probing the limits of our understanding and creating iconic particles like the Higgs boson. You probably don't think of the trusty old proton. And why should you? Most school kids already know all about this particle, that it's positively charged and sits in the nucleus of atoms, making up much of their mass. Boring. Except protons are anything but boring. The closer you look, the more complex these particles appear. Here's physicist Haiyan Gao. So they're not really a point like particle like electron, for example. It has a very, very rich internal structure. You may have heard that protons are made up of three smaller elementary particles called quarks. Two ups and one down quark, to be precise. But that's only the tip of the particle iceberg, as proton researcher Paul Reimer explains. And then something has to hold them all together. And being very original, physicists thought that something was, you know, had to glue them together. So we called that the uh, gluons. Aside from gluing the proton together, gluons can create ephemeral quark-antiquark pairs. For example, an up-quark and an anti-up-quark. Okay, so let's take stock. The proton is much more complicated than first meets the eye. We've got the main three quarks, but swimming within the protons, we've also got gluons holding everything together, and these quark-antiquark pairs springing in and out of existence. Now, a gluon is just as happy making an up-quark and an anti-up-quark as it is making a down and anti-down quark. They're not fussy. Plus, up and down quarks, or U and D quarks for short, have very similar masses. This means... You should not really expect any difference between the amount of anti-U quark I should expect to see compared with anti-D quark, right? Well, physics has a way of confounding expectations, and there was already some evidence of a difference between the numbers of anti-quarks in the proton. 
So Paul and his team set out to carefully investigate the numbers of anti-up quarks compared to the number of anti-down quarks. They do this using physicists' favourite technique, smashing things together. More specifically, they smash protons into other protons. This can give off shrapnel with a clear signature when a quark and its anti-quark counterpart annihilate. The trick is then to repeat this experiment by smashing protons into neutrons, since a neutron is, in some sense, a mirror image of the proton. So if you do this measurement on neutrons and protons and compare the two, you then get a ratio of the number of anti-down quarks to the number of anti-up quarks in the proton. So that's exactly what Paul and his collaborators did. Previous experiments had shown that for some conditions, the proton preferred anti-down quarks, but that perhaps this preference switched for other conditions. But this new experiment, which is published this week, paints a much more conclusive story. Nature seems to always prefer within the proton to make more anti-down quarks than anti-up quarks. And this is a really weird observation, because there's nothing that we know of that should distinguish in nature between it making more anti-up quarks or more anti-down quarks. Haiyan, who didn't work on this study, is intrigued to learn about this clear-cut proton preference for anti-down quarks. So the result is actually very significant and also, of course, very interesting. And it will be uh, extremely exciting or important to understand, you know, the origin for this particular behavior this paper, you know, has reported. Because at the moment, the cause of this imbalance remains unclear. One avenue is through another property of the proton, the spin. And Haiyan also hopes that starting from the fundamental physical laws and comparing the results with experiments could reveal new insights. We would like to see theoretical uh, prediction from computer simulation based on the first principles. I mean, people are working on that, but at this moment, you know, have not been able to reach the kind of precision can be compared with the experiment. So it'll take some time before physicists can lay this mystery to rest and clarify the complex inner life of the proton. Doing so could expand our understanding of the law of physics that governs quarks and gluons, the strong nuclear force. But in the meantime, one thing is for sure. For physicists like Haiyan and Paul, the proton is well worth a closer look. Protons and neutrons, they just continue to amaze physicists. I'm just, you know, speechless when I think about all the exciting things going on in the protons. Sometimes I always kind of think, you know, can I actually somehow get a right inside the proton just to see what's going on? I mean, just fascinating. So this type of exploration is something I've wanted to do all my life since I was a little kid. And it's really, you know, exciting and sort of mind boggling that it is my job to look inside the proton and say, hey, What's going on? Yeah, I love it. That was Paul Reimer from Argonne National Laboratory in the US. You also heard from Haiyan Gao from Duke University, also in the US. To read more about the bizarre internal makeup of protons, be sure to check out the show notes where there'll be a link to Paul's paper and a News & Views article written by Haiyan. Coming up, we'll be hearing about a potential new method to treat a debilitating condition known as short bowel syndrome. Now though, Dan Fox is here with this week's Research Highlights. 
As the first shoots of spring start to appear here in the UK, it seems winter may not have been quite as chilly for some people as for others, especially if they have a genetic variation that appears to make them more tolerant to the cold. 1.5 billion people globally have two non-functional versions of the gene ACTN3. This non-functional gene is more common in colder climates like Central and Northern Europe than in Africa. To find out why, researchers recruited a group of volunteers with and without the functional gene and then immersed these participants in cold water. The scientists found that more of the volunteers with the non-functioning gene could maintain a higher body temperature than those with the functional variant. They also noted that those lacking functional ACTN3 seemed to stay warm not by shivering, but by tensing their muscles, an energy-efficient way to preserve heat. This mechanism could explain why the non-functioning gene became more abundant as humans migrated to colder climates. Chill out with that paper in the American Journal of Human Genetics. For more than 60 years, the rocky relationship between the United States and Cuba has helped to steer tourists and businesses away from the Caribbean island. Now, researchers have found that Cuba's economic and political isolation might also have limited the spread of invasive plants. Researchers used lists of non-native plants to estimate the number of invasive species on 45 Caribbean islands and found that larger islands tend to have more exotic species than smaller ones. But Cuba, the biggest island in the Caribbean, is home to hundreds fewer such species than expected for its size. The team found that mass tourism seems to favour the introduction of invasive plants, probably because hotels plant exotic ornamental species and tourists carry seeds in their bags or on their shoes. Cuba, with one of the region's lowest share of holidaymakers, has about the same number of invasive species as Puerto Rico, which is one-tenth the size, but has many more visitors for its land area. Read that research in full at Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment. Next up on the show, I've been finding out about how regenerative medicine may be able to help treat a debilitating and often fatal bowel condition. Short bowel syndrome is a condition that occurs when most of the small intestine has been removed from a person. Typically, this is to treat diseases such as Crohn's disease, where the intestine has become damaged or blocked. Without a large part of the small intestine, people are unable to absorb enough nutrients and must be fed intravenously. The only real treatment for this condition is a transplant, but this has its own problems. There remain several issues, such as donor shortage and immune rejection. Immune rejection frequently occurs after small intestine transplantation. This is Toshiro Sato. This week in Nature, he's publishing a paper about an alternative method to treat short bowel syndrome that could get around problems like donor shortage and transplant rejection. The new alternative uses stem cells to create small lab-grown intestinal organoids. Organoids are three-dimensional structures derived from stem cells. There are a variety of organoids that are derived from embryonic stem cells and tissue stem cells and mimic the brain, kidney, liver, and etc. 
In our case,、uh, we isolate intestinal epithelium from mice, rats, and even humans and grow them in a culture dish as organoids. These organoids have been used in a lot of research, but so far, never as a treatment in humans. One of the challenges is that you can use the organoid to grow tissue resembling the small intestine, but it doesn't have all the complicated structures and systems of a fully fledged organ. So, how can you go from an organoid to a whole organ? From a lump of cells to absorbing nutrients in the gut? Well, Toshiro looked to the colon. Now, the colon is part of the large intestine. And it has some differences from the small intestine. For example, it lacks villi, small finger like structures that can help absorb nutrients in the small intestine. But crucially for Toshiro, the colon does have some key similarities to the small intestine. They're both tube structures in the gut. So Toshiro wondered if he could use the colon, almost like a scaffold, to put the small intestine organoids on. So, they would grow more like a fully fledged organ. He tried this out in mice by first removing the outer surface of the colon and replacing it with the organoid tissue, and then observing whether this colon small intestine hybrid grew structures specific to the small intestine, like the villi. Interestingly, after the transplantation of human ileum organoids, the mouse colon started to build up intestinal villi. This result gave us the idea that we can transform our colon into small intestine using organoid transplantation. We call the transformed colon a small intestinalized colon. Creating these small intestinalized colons does actually replace part of the colon, but it's possible to live a long and healthy life with only some of it. Compare that to short bowel syndrome, and it seems like an easy trade off. The next step was for Toshiro to see if these transformed colons could actually treat short bowel syndrome. Could they replace the small intestine itself? So he developed a rat model for short bowel syndrome and transplanted the small intestinalized colons into some of the rats, but not into others. Without transplantation, all rats lost weight and died within 10 days, whereas rats with transplantation survived longer. To confirm that this greater survival was down to the small intestinalized colons, Toshiro repeated this experiment with two different types of colon. One were the small intestinalized colons that we've been talking about, and the other were colons that had undergone a similar process, but this time using colon organoids. Again, it seemed like the small intestinalized colons treated the short bowel syndrome. And the rats survived longer. There's still a fair amount to be done to perfect this technique. However, Toshiro was encouraged by how similar these small intestinalized colons were to the real small intestine. In fact, one of the most surprising findings was that the colon developed not only intestinal villi, but also small lymph ducts inside the villi, a hallmark of small intestine. Other than lymph ducts and villi, the small intestinalized colons also seem to actually work like a regular small intestine. They even contracted to digest food. And that is something that could only happen if the nervous system was operating similarly to a real small intestine. Whilst there's still a lot of work to be done, this is a great proof of principle that organoids could be used as treatments for disease. And that's where Toshiro is headed next. 
he's trying to work out how to make such a treatment a reality in humans to regenerate organs as therapy for short bowel syndrome. The surgical procedure itself is feasible in humans. To take a step further, we need to prove the feasibility of the entire system using a larger animal model, such as pigs. If the safety is proven, it will also open up the possibility of organ regeneration therapy for patients with short bowel syndrome. That was Toshiro Sato of the Keio University School of Medicine in Tokyo, Japan. To find out more about organoid transplantation, be sure to check out the show notes, where there'll be a link to his paper. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Nick, what have you found in the briefing this week? Well, Shamini, I've been looking at a story that's been 3.9 billion years in the making, and that is the landing of Perseverance on Mars. Okay, I knew that it had taken a while and quite a lot of planning. <laughs> um, I don't know, is, is, is the planet Mars 3.9 billion years old i'm i'm not sure about this claim (laughs) um so i'm being a little bit flippant here but basically the crater that the lander landed in was created 3.9 billion years ago when a meteor collided with mars and made this gigantic crater known as the jizero crater and that's where perseverance has landed and is going to carry out its operations now it's reached mars well yeah very exciting is this the first of the 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 mars trips to have arrived because i remember when they all set off last year in the in the launch window three missions were heading there so is, is this the first this is the first one to land on mars so china are sending a lander sometime later this year but the uae the united arab emirates and china have orbiters now orbiting the planet but this is nasa's mission which is a rover that's going to be going around mars and looking for signs of life and did they um you know, you said you've, you've mentioned this crater. Did they specifically land in this ancient crater because it is flat, because it is fascinating, or is that just happened to be where it where it ended up? No, surprisingly, they do tend to plan these things quite <laughs> carefully. So they pick this crater out specifically because it looks like it used to be a riverbed on Mars. So if there's going to be signs of life anywhere, it's likely to be where there was once water. And so what Perseverance, or Percy, as some of the engineers have been calling it, (laughs) is going to be doing is it's going to be going around here and collecting rocks that may have signs of life, maybe microbial life, that existed on Mars, if it did, billions of years ago. But this mission is particularly interesting because what Perseverance is going to do is it's going to basically make little rock piles that will be collected by later missions and actually brought back to Earth. So this will be the first time that we'll send some rocks back to Earth for further analysis. I'm imagining it's like making these little cairns and sticking these little flags on top as it goes (laughs) everywhere. That's wonderful. But So I saw um, there was some video going around on social media of the surface of Mars, which was actually from a previous mission and using some sort of audio seismological data. So do we have much from Percy yet? Can we see what Percy has seen? So there have been some videos and some photos that have been floating around. So one that just went up the other day was actually a video of the descent. And if you've followed any missions from Mars, you know that descent is one of the most tricky and dangerous parts. But you can actually see the whole process go off. You can see the parachute come out and you can see this thing called a sky crane come out as well, which was a thing to sort of stabilise the rover as it landed 
on the planet. And we've got a few images of the surface as well. So far, it looks sort of rocky and barren, to be expected, but I'm sure there'll be many more images to come. It's able to take pictures of the sky. It's actually got microphones on it as well, so we'll be able to get some actual sounds from the planet too. And you said that the little pile of stones, that's for a later sort of mission, so we're not going to have data from that yet. What kind of data can it get? Can it send back straight away? And and do we have any of that? Well, it's only just landed there. So at the moment, it's just checking itself out and making sure everything (laughs) is working properly. Some of the things that it will do, as I said, it's got microphones, so it'll gather some sounds from the planets. It'll be able to analyse rocks on the planet, and that'll be how it decides, you know, is this maybe a rock where there's some evidence of life and things like that? But it also has a helicopter on board, so it's going to be able to send out the first flying vehicle on another planet to fly around and study the planet's surface. That is so cool. It's pretty hard to to beat a story like this as, yeah, seeing what what the surface of another planet is like. I think I have also a pretty exciting story from the briefing, however. Certainly the, the headline sort of jumped out at me when I read it, which is about talking to people who are dreaming. Talking to people who are dreaming, um... How how do you even do that? Surely they're asleep? They are very much asleep. That's key. Right, so um, how much do you know about lucid dreaming? I think it's a thing where you can basically just, you know, take control of your dream or something like that. But is that a thing that people can actually do? I've, I've never tried either. Um, it, it is a real thing. Um, and there's actually quite a lot of people who are quite into lucid dreaming. And there are ways that you can either get better at it or try and allow yourself to lucid dream. So to... Be conscious while you're dreaming that you are in a dream and thus potentially able to affect the dream. Obviously, like the key thing about being asleep and being dreaming is that everything is in your head. You know, all the images are sort of created by your brain and you're sort of shut away from the outside world. But what this experiment does is try and say, okay, if people are lucid dreaming, they are able to a limited extent to control elements of their body such as facial muscle movements or eye movements can we use that to see if they can actually to actually hear what's going on in the outside world and potentially respond to it and well i guess the obvious question is were they able to respond to sort of stimuli from the outside world so um yeah well they they tried it there's a few different teams in different countries tried different methods so they got a whole bunch of people to come and have naps in the lab, you know, daytime laps or just when people were going to sleep or when people sort of woke up in the morning, someone with narcolepsy, people who were already kind of quite good at lucid dreaming, people who they trained in lucid dreaming and they taught them a few different ways of communicating. So like the eye movements, for example, is one. And then they tried different ways of communicating with them. Um, So for example, well, either, either just sort of whispering at someone or um in one case uh beeping at someone but in in morse code oh okay so th- they're whispering beeping things what, what are they saying to them how are they trying to communicate with these guys my, my favorite one, one of what they were um doing was giving them maths problems <laughs> while they were sleeping <laughs> um and getting them to like facially twitch like the answers so for example like one of them was like, what's eight minus six? And the guy was like moving his eyeballs from like left to right twice to indicate two. 
Um, wow. And I think I think the trickiest thing here was that you know they wanted to show that it wasn't that they weren't like reading too much into some twitches um, and that the people were genuinely responding. So they did sort of a whole bunch of, of different tests. And for some people, you know, it didn't it didn't work at all. But for some people, it, it worked on multiple occasions. But out of 158 questions that they asked sort of lucid dreaming people, which they were also sort of monitoring the RAM to kind of prove that they were dreaming at the same time, there were 18.6% gave the right answer to the question. Most times there was no response, but the wrong answer was only 3% of the time. And then there were a few that sort of weren't very clear. So I think it's relatively convincing that even though it's it's quite tricky to communicate them it wasn't just by chance they were able to integrate this experience from the outside world um, and actually some of them then uh, when they woke up some of them couldn't remember at all and some of them sort of misremembered it and some of them remembered like the voice like coming out of like the car radio in the dream or like they were they were in like a scene and then there was this voiceover like asking them questions that they recalled <laughs> i mean to, to me, getting maths problems while I sleep sounds like a nightmare, but I'm sure this is quite a useful technique. What what might researchers be able to do with this ability to communicate with lucid dreamers? I think the main sort of advantage of showing that this is possible is that for people who study sleep and dreaming, and obviously dreaming is a sort of quite weird thing that our brains do, um, so of quite a lot of interest... But trying to study that from like me telling you what I dreamt about after I've woken up is somewhat limited. Now, to be honest, me twitching my eyes at you to tell you while I'm in it is also limited. <laughs> um, but it's it's another avenue. It's another insight into actually being able to study how dreaming works, what our brain is going on. One of the researchers likened it to like talking to someone on another planet. You know, they're in a completely different world and we've finally been able to send a telephone wire between it. Well, that's a lovely link to my story as well, communicating with another world. And I think that's probably all we've got time for for the briefing this week. But thank you so much for talking to me, Sharmini. And listeners, if you'd like to know more about Perseverance, then there are several articles in Nature. And for more about lucid dreaming, check out the article in Science. There'll be links to all that in the show notes. And if you're interested in more stories like this, but instead as an email, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing. Again, we'll put links in the show notes where you can sign up. That's all for this week. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, then you can reach us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or if email is more your thing, then we're podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.